We're back in Acts chapter 20, which I believe is on page 929. You're going to find this passage here. We're going to start in verse 13, where we left off a couple weeks ago. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 13, going up to verse 27. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him, and when they came to him he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of of the blood of all of you, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Well, it's good to be back after a couple weeks away from you all. Got to enjoy a couple of weddings. I'm very sorry we missed hearing Michael and David live and in person. Many thanks to those of you who helped keep things afloat here. Uh, You know, everyone has different standards of success when they go away on vacation. We didn't get much rest, per se. Uh, We were at a Greek wedding last week, and I feel like we need a vacation just to recover from it. But uh, it's also a good sign to, to come home and find that nothing burned down, at least. Even the church is still standing, so no insurance money yet. We can try again sometime. Um, But we we left off a few weeks back uh, with Paul making a a little pit stop in in Troas, if you'll recall, which is the west coast of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, south of Constantinople, Istanbul today, which uh, that hasn't been built yet, uh, and north of Ephesus, which was the big city uh, where Paul had spent so much time in, in the province uh, and Troas, you'll remember, was where Paul had received this Macedonian vision some years back on his last missions trip. It was also where he met Luke, our author, though he doesn't tell the story of that. But uh, on this most recent visit, we, we found that there was a flourishing church in Troas, which meets on the third floor of some building in town. I know some of you struggle with the steps here at LVPC. If you can imagine the inconvenience of the church at Troas uh, having to deal with that. No handicapped ramps or indoor plumbing uh, or AC. So that's pretty rough. 
But anyway, Paul spent a week with these brothers, and he, this all culminated. He capped it off with this overnight church service. He preached for hours, leading to the premature death of some kid named Eutychus. But Paul raised him up and proceeded to talk straight through the night. You know, when my father first got saved, uh, he was involved in a largely a black Baptist church in North Philly. It later became uh, Deliverance. But uh, he, he dragged my mom, who he was dating at the time, to several all-night prayer meetings at this church. It's a marvel the relationship survived. She was a mainline Protestant girl. Uh, that was not the sort of scene she was prepared for. But I, I, And I confessed a couple of weeks back, I share this feeling because I, 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 I judged Paul kind of harshly for the long sermon. But in fairness... The second part of the night, I think it might have been weirder if Paul had walked out and gone home right after raising Eutychus. It's like, oh, it's all right, everybody, he's okay, I'm get going. You know, that, that would be kind of awkward. So maybe the most normal thing he could do at that point was to stay and chat with these folks and calm their nerves a bit after a rather harrowing experience. And it does seem like he sort of switched gears at that point from preaching mode to more like chatting, because verse 11 said that he conversed with them all night. So this is not so much a second sermon, more of an all-night fellowship hour. Uh, you know, our, our coffee hour is, is only a symbolic hour, as we know. It's actually only 45 minutes. But in Troas, the coffee hour was also symbolic. It was more like six hours. Um, so, you know, for God, a, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. It's just like that. Um, but then by verse 12, dawn is breaking, the meeting breaks up, and today we rejoin the story here in time to see Paul leaving town in the morning. And he does something that was easy to breeze past, but it, it kind of caught my eye, and I'm not going to lie, well, the first thing I noticed was that Assos is just kind of a funny name for a town, but that's Greek for you. Uh, but the second thing that caught my eye was this weird travel arrangement that you get starting in verse 13. It says, Going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. Okay. So everyone goes to the harbor that morning. We're in a big hurry, right? Paul's motley crew of guys, we've seen there's a whole big group of guys. He's picked them up all throughout Europe and Asia. They all get on the boat in the harbor there, and Paul's just like, I think I'll just walk, fellas. Okay, because, you know, we just paid for the boat, and it would be much easier than walking, but now we have to stop in some other random town to pick you up, and we might get there at different times and have to wait for each other, and it might screw up the plans, and I thought you were in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, but, you know, whatever you do, you, Paul, okay. And, and I didn't know what to think of this at first, because, you know, Luke doesn't do much to explain it, and he, he doesn't harp on it, uh, but that's actually why it started to bother me. It's like one of these loose ends, like Columbo picks up one, right, you know? If Luke had explained Paul's motive here, then we could just move on with life, you know? Maybe he had friends to visit on the way, or he has some evangelizing he's going to do in some towns. Maybe, maybe they were short on funds, and uh, this made his boat fare cheaper. Like, it could be anything, right? But Luke gives no clear explanation. He just states the simple fact that Paul decided to walk while everyone else got on the boat, and we know for sure that he walked alone because verse 14 makes it clear that he was by himself. Paul went the long way, and he did it alone. So I had to spend some time on Google Maps. So Troas and Assos, they sit on opposite ends of sort of like a, a peninsula that juts out into the Aegean Sea. It's just a mountainous bit of land. 
And even on today's modern roads, and with the benefit of computer algorithms finding the most direct route, this is at least 10 hours of walking. And you have to consider this as well. He's starting at the coast, and he's going to go to another coast, but he's going over mountains that reach elevations of about 3,600 feet. So unless he's walking beside the sea, in which case that would be a much longer route, and that wouldn't make sense, partly because the coastal route of this peninsula is virtually impassable even by today's standards. Google Maps doesn't even allow you to map it. And also, if he went the long way, he would almost certainly lag way behind the boat, meaning that the other disciples would get to Assos at least a day or two in advance and end up having to wait for him to catch up. And seeing as they had to hire this boat, it's not their own, that would be highly unlikely, because you don't ask a ship captain to sit in harbor for two days while you wait for your friend. He'll end up leaving you behind, because he has a schedule to keep. And what that means is that Paul almost certainly made a fairly direct beeline over the mountains. And it's a rough road. And more importantly, it's almost uninhabited. Even today, with, you know modern construction or whatever, there's five miniature villages kind of spotted along here. Maybe at most about a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred people live at all on this peninsula between these two towns. Uh, That's weird. You know, Paul's been a lot of places in the last few years, but he seldom goes anywhere by himself. He goes from city to city, right? Big places. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's making friends, he's making connections. And now suddenly he, he makes a completely unnecessary detour over the mountains from sea level up to 3,500 feet and more, a strenuous walk from sea level up, and he won't have time to stop because he needs to get to the other harbor in time, and there's no major villages or cities on the way, and he brought none of his co-workers to help with any evangelistic efforts, so he's not going to start churches when he's in this kind of big hurry. And there's just nothing strategically sensible about any of this. It's not a shortcut. Verse 16 made clear that Paul had a schedule to keep, and you know I don't think it's for lack of seats on the boat. I think you could almost always fit one more guy, and why not make one of the younger guys walk if space is tight, right? Why would Paul choose to take the long, hard road over the mountains alone? For the sake of his health? I've sometimes walked for my health, not usually by choice, I dropped my car at the garage one morning this week, and I had to walk back because Georgia was asleep, so I walked out of love for my wife, and I really felt good about myself, you know. But it was not really a personal health choice. Sometimes Georgia and I coerce each other into walking. We have to do that because our health apparently is less important to us than the sense of guilt and shame that we inflict on each other. Shame is a much better motivator than some vague idea of physical well-being, at least in our experience. But one thing that does lead me to walk voluntarily is not so much physical health, but mental and spiritual health. When I walk, rare as that is, uh, it's often for the sake of my sanity. When I was a freshman in college, I had six roommates over the course of that year, and they were very hard to live with. And I would take long walks in the winter cold at night around Beaver Stadium by myself just to find some quiet so I could think and I could pray. Today I have six kids that are sometimes hard to live with, and I walk the streets of West Allentown for much the same reason. But walking 
especially alone or with a friend, is a great way to process your thoughts. It's a great time to pray. Going for a walk is a healthy and fairly natural response to feeling overwhelmed. It's a chance to clear your head, and it's cheaper than a vacation. Walking, in other words, is a great pastime for the preoccupied. This is why dads in all the old movies pace the waiting rooms when their wives are in labor, because back then walking was all you were allowed to do, you know? Not like now, Georgia made me be present and work at all of those, but Georgia herself has been known to disappear on long walks when she's had a rough day, and I can almost predict the problem based on how long she's missing. (laughs) If it's only 15 minutes, it might just be a stressful phone call she got from her mother. If it's in half an hour, it's probably the kids. Any longer than that, it's probably me. If it gets to be an hour, that's when I start to drive around looking for her so I can apologize for whatever I did. (laughs) But seriously, what else can you do when you're stressed out by things that are beyond your control? Walking is like the universal method of decompressing. Walking off into the hills is exactly what Jesus used to do when he would get stressed out. So this has biblical, godly precedence. Sometimes going for a walk is all you can do when your mind is clouded and your burdens feel heavy and you feel like you need to think. And I believe Paul is very preoccupied. This walk from Troas to Assos has nothing to do with ministry so much as it's a mini sabbatical. It's a retreat so that he can go talk with God. Now, the other morning I I was laying in bed talking to George about something and I, I was kind of stressed about something, which is not uncommon. I don't remember what it was. And as I'm talking, we're talking, Gwen walks in and she lays down with us. She does that some mornings and she's laying there sucking her fingers. Gwen, not Georgia. And I I was saying to Georgia, I said, well, maybe in response to this thing, maybe I should just do such and such. Whatever it was. And Gwen, not knowing or caring what we were talking about, interrupts and says, or we should just go to a really faraway place and have a wonderful time there and try not to care about that. (laughs) I like that thinking. That sure sounds like a retreat. And retreats are really useful in that way. Some of you have assumed that's exactly where we've been the last two Sundays, off having a wonderful time and trying not to care. Maybe we were trying, but it's not entirely worked. But, you know, Um, it, it is, I think, what Paul is doing here. I think he's walking for the sake of clearing his head, a Jesus-style retreat. Now that raises another question. What is on Paul's mind that requires a long walk by himself? Could it be a, a, a hangover from the affair with Eutychus? I mean, that could be. Paul has seen his share of violence and trouble over the last few years, but this was the first time, I think, that he was directly responsible for the death of one of his flock. Now, I haven't killed any of you yet, but I can imagine that shakes a pastor's nerves a little bit if these things happen. And all's well that ends well, right? But maybe Paul needed to walk that off. That could be. But I'm not sure that's clearly the reason. Luke just leaves us a bit blind in these opening verses. So we're just going to go ahead and follow along and see the rest of the travelogue and see if that helps make sense of anything. How's that? Where were we here now? 
14, okay, we met up at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Okay, that's a lot of geographic mumbo-jumbo, I understand. Paul and company basically stop for a cup of coffee in lots of little port towns on the islands and on the coast, and they're working their way south along the Aegean Sea, heading back towards Judea, and they don't stay anywhere very long. Okay, that's not very interesting on its face. The thing worth noting is something you would notice on the map, and that is the fact, and they mention it here, Luke mentions it, the fact that they blew right past Ephesus. It's the largest city in the province. It's an obvious thing. It's the biggest port, and they just skip it. Instead, Paul and company disembark finally at Miletus, about 40 miles south of Ephesus, because, as Luke says, Paul is hurrying to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost. If any of you have ever avoided stopping at somebody's house because you're afraid you'll never get away, then you understand Paul's logic here. Because we all have those relatives and friends for whom a quick stop is like a three-hour affair, right? I think we are those friends to some people. Um, Any which way, Paul skips Ephesus, presumably to avoid long goodbyes and delays. But then he kind of shoots himself in the foot. Verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. What we're about to get into, and what we'll be looking at next week as well, is the first recorded session meeting, I think, in church history. And maybe this is also why Paul needed to go for a walk and clear his head, I don't know. But just a thought, if you are looking to slip by quickly and quietly, sending messengers 40 miles north to invite all the elders from Ephesus to come down for a visit is probably not the best way to do it. This is not exactly around the corner. Uh, Paul raced down to Miletus, and now he'll have to wait probably nearly a week for these Ephesian elders to get there. Now, I've called a few session meetings in the last two and a half years. I've never made any of these guys even drive this far, let alone walk it. I don't know how many of you have ever actually read the Declaration of Independence. One of the complaints against King George by the Founding Fathers was that he would call inconvenient meetings. As Jefferson writes, he said, He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. Someone should have warned Paul, meetings like this cause revolutions, you know. Anyway, Paul calls this session meeting in Miletus for Ephesus, and surprisingly, they come. One of these weeks, I'm going to call a session meeting in Pittsburgh and just see what you guys do. (laughs) But in any event, uh, the next major event Luke focuses on is this session meeting, this gathering of the elders of Ephesus in Miletus, something like an elders' retreat. And remember, the Ephesian church, this is kind of Paul's baby. Ephesus is where he has spent the longest time of any of his missions trips. It's the place he prayed to get to, he fought to get to, the Spirit kept him out, then the Spirit got him in. It's been like this many years drama that has played out in him getting to Ephesus. So what are his final words to these elders? We're going to be looking at that 
for the, a little bit today and then next week, but what do they need to know if they're never going to see him again, as he words it? What would be your final words if this was your last chance to talk to the leadership of this church or any other church for that matter? And I think here in Miletus is where we finally, I think, get a picture of what's been on Paul's mind. Beginning in verse 18 here, when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing he needs them to know I mean, everyone wants to deliver famous last words. Paul will eventually write a final letter to this church later, but this is the last time he's going to address these guys face-to-face. He only gets the chance to address the leaders here at this retreat, and Paul starts by defending his record. It's a strange thing to do with the guys who already know your record, but when Paul starts by reviewing his record, it kind of implies that something big is going on because you don't give your life story unless you think time is short. If you ever catch someone giving their whole life story, it's often because they're feeling their own mortality, uh, like they have to give the whole picture while they still can. So Paul says, look, here's how I want you all to remember me. I was always there for you. I put up with a lot of crap while I was with you. I was humble. I had a lot of enemies against me. But I declared the gospel to you. I gave you Jesus, and I did it without hesitation. I taught you in public. I taught you in private. I taught everyone, regardless of background, and my message in all circumstances was repentance and faith in Jesus. That's the first thing Paul wants them to remember, above anything else. But then he gets to the reasons why he's bringing this all up, beginning in verse 22. He says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I think now that walk from Troas to Assos is starting to make more sense, right? Paul is saying basically, look, I've, I've done a good job. I've honored the Lord. I gave you everything you need. But in spite of that, it looks like suffering is in my future and pretty soon. I, I think it's always a, a hard thing for us as Christians to understand. I, I've walked with some dying and suffering believers, and a common question is, why is God doing this to me? And it's not uncommon to hear believers start listing the good they have done. Uh, I loved my wife and kids. I went to church. I supported missions work. I did this and that. And it's, the sense is like, why didn't that get me off the hook? Why does God want, what does he want from me? And I think, likewise, Paul has done good work, better work than most of us, if we're honest. And he's not suffering yet, but he's had, he has this terrible premonition of what's coming. My, my older kids have recently gotten hooked on Alfred Hitchcock's uh, show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. We're still on season one, but the very first episode of that show is called Premonition, all about some guy who goes back to his hometown to visit his father only to find out that his dad's been dead for four years, and from the beginning he has this premonition that something is wrong. 
And that's actually why he went back to begin with, but he slowly realizes how dark and sinister the situation is. I'm not going to give it all away for you, just in case you want to watch it. But the guy just has the sense something is wrong, and it's much more wrong than he imagines. And I think that's kind of where Paul is at. Uh, If you remember, just a little while back, uh, while he was nearing the end of his time in Ephesus, Paul suddenly mentioned Rome back in chapter 19. And in verse... 21, he says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia, Achaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. That didn't sound so ominous at the time. Paul sounded like he was looking forward to it, right? But here we are a chapter later, and Paul has a very different attitude about the situation. Something has changed. And I would submit that Paul's long walk over the mountains was part of this. Either the message was received during that time, or perhaps more likely he took the long road in response to the message as he was hashing this out and kind of doing business with God. God made it very clear to Paul that something bad is coming, coming, something really bad. And just as the Spirit kept him away from Ephesus for years, so even now the Spirit has made clear that Paul's road is going to be difficult. The Spirit is making clear there is danger for you in Jerusalem, Paul. But apparently he's made it clear that Paul needs to go anyway. Paul says he feels constrained to go. He has no choice. That's a tough pill to swallow for anyone. I think it's a common thing for those who receive a bad prognosis to question God's justice. But Paul, being much more useful to the kingdom again than most of us, has to feel that too. Paul is experiencing some of what Jesus went through. Jesus himself spent most of his ministry under a cloud, especially as he approached his final days. He knew the worst moments were ahead of him. And it wasn't just death, but the abandonment of his friends and even of his father. Jesus saw all of that coming, and he knew how bad it would be. We can only kind of imagine it. I think he kind of understood it, because he knew how good it was to be with his father. Now, I'm not sure if Paul's vision of the the future is quite so clear as what it was for Jesus, but he knows whatever it is will be painful and that it's unavoidable. He foresees prison. He foresees suffering. In other words, state-sponsored persecution is what's coming his way, and it's going to start in Jerusalem. He's been told. The Holy Spirit has apparently been revealing this to him for months in every city, Paul says. Now, foreknowledge is great if it means you can use it, to avoid trouble. This is why we use Google Maps, correct? No one intentionally drives into traffic jams if they have Google Maps or construction zones. It's also why we have Google for the weather. You don't plan a day at the beach when the storms are predicted, right? God has given Paul foresight to know that Jerusalem is dangerous. This is red over here, right? And more than it was even before. Last time Paul got in hot water in Jerusalem was right after he got saved. And on that occasion, the church helped him escape. And this time, there ain't going to be an escape. So Paul's driving right into the traffic jam. He's going to the beach with the hurricane predicted. And it is a strange thing about the Christian faith that we are promised trouble. Jesus predicted trouble for those that follow him, not so we could avoid it, but so that we could count the cost. There is no promise of health and wealth in the gospel. We're not promised justice in the gospel, not in this life. 
We're not promised long life. We're not even promised ministry success, at least not that we can observe. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I read that and I think to myself, he has overcome, yes, but not us. (laughs) And a lot of the Christian life doesn't look like overcoming, and sometimes it frankly looks like a steady cycle of failures and disappointments or an endless stream of avoidable mistakes. And it ends in death, like everybody else does. It can be depressing if that's all you see. But how does Paul see these things? He realizes all this hard work is going to end in suffering and disgrace. Is he bitter about it? Doesn't sound like it. Verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only... I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So the purpose of life, according to Paul, is not to live longer or to die comfortably or even see his ministry success. The point of life is not even to enjoy the fruit of his labors. His goal is to finish the job, and he doesn't cling to life as an end in itself. He sees his life as something that he's investing in the kingdom. And his only goal is to finish the work he's been called to. And Paul clearly believes he has done so, so far. He says, And now behold, I know that none of you among, none, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you that this day I am innocent of the blood of of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul makes it very clear. He makes no bones about it. This is my swan song. Fellas, you're never going to see me again. That's not a great pep talk. It's not something I would necessarily try at an elder's retreat, but Paul wants them to know I gave you everything I had and everything you need. I gave you the gospel. I gave you the whole counsel of God. I held nothing back. And Paul is at peace with the situation. But I don't think it was easy necessarily for him to get to that place. I think that's why he resisted this temptation to visit Ephesus in person. I think it would have been too hard for him to pull himself away. I think nothing would have given him more joy than going back to Ephesus. That is his happy place, but he doesn't want to face the temptation to cling to it. If he went there, it would be much harder to press on. And I think that's why he needed to go on the mountain walk. He needed to do business with God. He needed to come to terms with what was going to happen. Now, I decided to stop here this week on this sad note. We're halfway through Paul's final speech to his Ephesian elders, and I'm stopping before he gets to any actual advice and commands, partly because I've already been talking too long, and partly because I want us to grasp the gravity of what is happening. Because this is a major turning point in the ministry of Paul. It's a major turning point in the book of Acts overall. This whole thing starts with Paul thinking about a visit to Rome, planning a fourth missions trip that would take him to the capital. He was looking forward to it. And then the Holy Spirit starts whispering in Paul's ear. He tells him, oh yeah, you'll get to see Rome. Ain't going to be pretty. Things are going to get ugly in Jerusalem. You are going to be dragged to Rome. Reaching Rome with the gospel of Jesus Christ will be more costly than anything else you've done so far. So, Paul, you still want to go? And I think most of us, if we're honest, would not sign up for this. Paul had 
solid ministries all over Turkey and Greece and Syria and Macedonia, and he could have spent the rest of his life just building on those foundations. Why give it all up just to get to Rome? The Holy Spirit has given you fair warning that Rome means suffering. The suffering will start in Jerusalem and it will last all the way to Rome. That seems like an obvious obstacle to avoid. And moreover, in the past, the Holy Spirit had been protecting Paul from this very sort of treatment. Paul has had more near misses and narrow escapes than I can even recall today. And here the Holy Spirit tells him straight up, Rome means jail, suffering, and death. And how does Paul respond? He skips the long goodbyes in Ephesus and hurries back to Jerusalem. He's running. The entire travelogue portion here is marked primarily by haste. We stopped here for a day. We stopped there for a day. We touched at Samos. Paul is racing back to Jerusalem to face this terrible thing. Why? Because his desire to reach the lost in Rome outweighs all other concerns. Safety third, or fourth, or fifth. He is not concerned for himself personally. He isn't worried about the churches he's already planted. He's trusting them to God. His focus and heart is on those who haven't heard the gospel yet. His life purpose is to spread the good news throughout the world. And Rome, that great city, was a great way to start. Because it's the capital of the empire and it's the crossroads of the world. But it's going to cost him. He knows the goal and he counts the cost. Now what does that mean for us? Most of us don't have a ministry death wish. The Holy Spirit never told me I would die in Allentown, at least not in so many words. But I think we can walk away with at least some pointers here, even before Paul's given any explicit orders to these elders. And one takeaway is that walking is good. Long walks are good for focusing the mind. Jesus used to climb mountains to get alone time. Sometimes he would cross lakes to find solitude. It's a time-honored practice. Good enough for Jesus, good enough for Paul, probably a good idea for us. But more importantly, I think that we as a church need to reflect on the fact that reaching people for Christ involves risk. It's kind of a given. But the church grows when safety takes a backseat to the gospel. Now, we've been talking as a session, and we will be talking throughout the summer, about outreach ideas. A large part of why I've been doing this series and acts for so long is to help orient us as a church toward evangelism and outreach. I think we struggle with it here at LVPC. I think most American churches do. I think most of us are happy to just keep going to church. And then we wonder why we're not growing or why people aren't getting saved because we don't evangelize our neighbors and we don't invite people to church. And most of us, if we're honest, kind of prefer armchair evangelism. We can post things on Facebook and we can read good books that encourage our faith personally. We do that kind of thing. And we're happy for the Pauls of the world who go and risk everything, but we don't even like to risk looking silly. We're being a little too pushy. I'm thinking most of us won't even have the nerve to invite a neighbor to the game next week. Not because our lives would be at risk, but we hate being seen as intrusive. 
But the model Paul has given us is quite different. I think we avoid talking about Jesus a lot of the time so we don't take a risk of looking rude or silly. Paul has a much more tangible risk he's facing. It's not even a risk, really. It's a guarantee. Risk implies there's a chance maybe it won't happen. The Holy Spirit says you will be imprisoned and suffer. And yet Paul hops on the Jerusalem Express to get started as soon as he possibly can, skipping the big reunion in Ephesus, wasting almost no time, all because Rome needs Jesus. And Paul's already given the Ephesian church everything they need. He's given them Jesus, he's given them the gospel, he's given them the whole counsel of God. They have what they need, and others still need to receive it. Paul's mission, his gospel focus, drives everything he does. So the question I'm left with is, is that true of me? Is it true of you? Is it true of us as a church? Do we really think the gospel is that kind of important? And what risks are we willing to assume to reach the ones who haven't heard yet? I don't have any answers right now. Those are just some questions, some food for thought, things to think about this week. And it raises still other questions, but Paul's going to address some of those next week. So we'll pause there and let me pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's ministry, Lord. We thank you for risk takers in the church, Lord, who face down trouble, Lord, and, and run to it even if it means that they can tell people about Jesus. Lord, give us just a taste of that. Give us a heart for the lost, Lord, that would run into hostile arenas even just for the chance to share some of the hope that we have, Lord. Make that hope so real to us that we can't resist wanting to share it. Help us to have that eternal perspective, Lord. Lord, we thank you for good session meetings, too. We thank you for this record, and we pray that you'd be with us as we look at it over the next week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever.